Afternoon, church. Hey, it's always a pleasure and a great honor to, to bring you God's word. Uh, it's just occurred to me that the last couple of times that I was um, here speaking to you uh, was always in Kevin's absence, um, whether he was actually away or whether he was doing something with the kids. But today, he sat here. So it's a great pleasure and honor to bring God's word to you all and Kevin and also in your presence as well. So we do this for the glory of our God, don't we? Yes. Um, Let me just open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for everything that you've done for all of us, for who you are, and for giving us the opportunity to come here today on the Lord's Day to sit at your feet, at your word, and to receive from you, Lord. Uh, I pray that everything that we uh, learn from the scriptures this afternoon will leave an indelible mark on our hearts, Lord, will carry us through the week coming and uh, until the time that you come, Lord. Let it be imprinted on our hearts and on our minds, Lord. Uh, Let us be the people that you have called us to be, Lord. We worship you and we give you all our honor and all our praise and our thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excellent. So we've not long ago started going through the book of Hebrews, approaching scripture as we usually do on our verse-by-verse basis, and Pastor Kevin has been giving us very careful exposition of the text so that uh, we're helped to understand the meaning and the application of God's Word. Last week and this week, uh, we've kind of had a couple of, a little bit of a break from this series. Last week, Pastor Steve came to us from Oxford, and uh, he spoke on forgiveness, the theology of it, you know, what it is, and uh, how God forgives, um, and the application of forgiveness especially in the lives of those that have been saved by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So still in our short break from Hebrews today, I'd like to do a topical study of sorts. Um, So picking one subject, one theme, and seeing its use in Scripture and its application as well to us. And that topic is one of the titles of God, one of his attributes. I'd like for us to look at one of his many names, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, it'd be Yahweh Tsebawot. Now, for those that are taking notes or writing it down, it's spelt T-S-E-B-A-O-T-H, Tsebawot. So we will sort of uncover and unpick this name and understand a little bit about what it means for us. And one thing is, when it comes to looking at the attributes of God, I think we always come to a realization of, of one, one important fact. And that is, whatever his attributes are, it is he that reveals them to us. You know, we don't get to create God in our image, do we? Yeah? Uh, uh, Everything we should know about God, everything that we do know about God, has to be defined by him and has to be given to us by him. And as his people, the aim is that the more we know of God, the more our faith increases. Yeah? The more we understand and accept of him, the closer he is to us. God has many names in the Bible, all of which reveal a different aspect of his person. And I have to admit that in preparing for this, uh, I found that it is this very name of God, Jehovah Tzebawot, or the Lord of hosts. This is the one that I had to wrestle with in my mind a little bit um, to understand more. And I'll share with you why. There are two main reasons. Firstly, for me anyways, I, like to tend, I tend to think of uh, the more sympathetic attributes 
of God, if I can say that. I think, you know, we all fall into that. You know, for example, we, uh, um, the, characteristics of, the characteristics of God that in and of themselves seem soft to start off with, you know. Uh, they don't induce terror or do induce images of gore. For example, I'll give an example, the Lord our peace, shalom, yeah, or, or the Lord our righteousness, tzikenu. Now, peace conjures imagery of calm and tranquility, stability. Um, righteousness connotes, you know, cleanliness, purity. And we think on those levels. But the underlying facts are that he is our peace because he has put an end to the animosity and the enmity between us and him through the cross. He is our righteousness because it cost him the blood of his only son on that cross in order that we might be righteous. You see, under that surface, God hates sin and therefore the sin must be dealt with and fall under the full weight of his wrath. And that is often a very violent imagery, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so all of these things are part of God's attributes and you know, some of these things uh, uh, sort of challenge me a little bit. Second reason is because if you're of my generation and certainly younger, uh, you would probably find that your sense of the reality of war is perhaps a little neutered, right? Yeah, we live in a nation that has been involved in war in one sense or another since the beginning of the millennium. You know, we've seen atrocities on television. Perhaps some of you might have demonstrated for or against, or uh, you might have voted one way or another uh, uh, um, because of our country's choice to be involved in these recent wars. But not all of us, and there are exceptions, not all of us necessarily have been on the front line. Yeah? Gone are the days where you have to do military service. Few of us here probably know what an army camp looks like. Few of us here probably don't know what it is to be like standing under the command of someone or standing in the presence of thousands who at once are obeying a single military command. So as such, relating to a God whose name reveals his military prowess hasn't been so simple. Yeah. That said, though, one thing I've learned is that, and I hope you will today, is that the military connotations to this name, Lord of Hosts, true as they are, point me to a God who deserves reverence and awe and expects humility from his subjects. Most of all, it reveals a God in whom I can be, A, confident, and B, I can approach, I can appeal to this God. And that's what I want to show you today. My points are basically two points. I want us to look, and we'll look at a couple of texts. Firstly, to show us how we can be confident in the Lord, uh, and also, secondly, to appeal. We can appeal to this God. Okay? Actually, the other way around. We'll do the appeal first. So, Firstly, let me just take, let's take a brief look at the name itself. Uh, before we get to the Lord of Hosts bit, I want us to look at God's proper name as he reveals to Moses in Exodus 3. Because all other names of God reveal his character and they need to be in, understood in the context of this divine name. So please turn your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Exodus chapter 3. Verses 13 and 14, we'll start from there. I'm reading from the ESV. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So this is where the divine name, translated as I am who I am, is first revealed. The name itself comes from the Hebrew verb to be. So here, God is commissioning Moses to undertake the gargantuan task of liberating the enslaved Hebrews from the hands of Pharaoh. And having been called by God, he does initially offer some resistance, but I think by this point he's pretty much uh, uh, understanding of the fact that it's going to happen. He has to, he's going to be the commissioned messenger. So he asks God, look, when they ask me of your name, who shall I say has sent me? This is, to, this is to, to, the confidence to go to his own people. Because if you know the story of Moses, he tried to liberate the Israelites once before. And it didn't quite work out. He did it in his own strength. Now, many, many years later, God is commissioning him officially. So he's kind of got his back to the wall. And he remembers that that experience. So he wants to go with full accreditation that he is a properly commissioned messenger. And God reveals his name to him. I am who I am, says God. Now, whatever you make of the Israelites in the Bible, and you see throughout uh, uh, the progression of the Old Testament, they display features, you know, characteristics of stubbornness and being rebellious. But they had such a deep reverence for the Lord's name. Uh, so much so that they refused to publicly use it. So much so that the name of God is written without any vowels, just consonants. Yeah? Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Now, when you see Lord in capitals in your, old, in your Bible, some of you, you will see that... Um, Behind that, actually, that's pointing to another word called Adonai. He's using the vowels from Adonai, which means Lord. Um, And it's this chosen designation to represent Yahweh because pronouncing Yahweh itself was a taboo. Now, the meaning of Yahweh, or the Latinized version that you'll also hear is Jehovah, is, and the two can be used interchangeably, the meaning of it is that he is the self-existing one. He is the creator. He doesn't derive his life, uh, his purpose, his existence, or being from anyone, anything, or anywhere. He is the fountain. He is the source from which all things derive. And when he reveals his name to Moses here, the word in Hebrew is indefinite. In other words, it combines past, present, and future tenses in one. I am, I was, I will always be. And from this name, the divine name Jehovah or Yahweh, other attributes are then attached to it, which all reveal God, like we've said before. So you have Jehovah Jireh, our provider. You have Jehovah Tzikenu, our righteousness. Jehovah Tzebaoth, Lord of hosts. You see the root name Jehovah or Yahweh. So we can say, thank you, Lord, that you are our righteousness, else we would be condemned to hell. We could say, thank you, Lord, that you are our provider, else we would have nothing. We can say, thank you, Lord, that you are our Lord of hosts, else we would not be protected. Yeah. So let's get to the meaning of Lord of hosts, the hosts part. Um, Sabbath, or the hosts, is often translation, as it's translated in English, what does it mean? It might interest you that of all the names of God in the Old Testament, this one appears in the Bible nearly 300 times. The Lord of hosts. Nearly 300 times that it's used. In the, in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Malachi, lots in the Psalms and throughout a lot of the prophets as well. 
And it is a title of might and power. And it's used very frequently in a military or apocalyptic sense. The Greek translation of this word is almighty, which is very apt because it reveals the sovereignty and the power of God. Some of you with NIV Bibles will see this word used often. Instead of Lord of hosts, you'll see Lord Almighty, or Lord God, or Lord God Almighty. The New Bible Dictionary gives this basic definition. I'll paraphrase it. It says of hosts, it is a divine title and used to exhibit Yahweh as at all times the savior and the protector of his people. The hosts may originally have been the armies of Israel, but at an early date came to comprise all the heavenly powers ready to do the Lord's command. My own ESV study Bible says that the word hosts, Sabaoth, is the plural of an abstract noun meaning something like plentifulness or numberlessness. And that will come up as we go through this talk. So hence it, re- it refers to numerous entities such as heavenly bodies, angelic beings, the armies of Israel, portrayed as God's armies. There's no surprise that in modern Hebrew the word Sabah is Army, or the plural Tzabaoth, is armies. Now, how is this word used in Scripture, and how can we apply it to ourself, ourselves? How do, we, how do we come to this attribute of God? I said it, you know, there are nearly 300 times that it is used. So I'll just pick two passages from the same, uh, same book. Initially, if you want to turn to 1 Samuel, okay, we'll go from there. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll look at the first way we can apply this. Actually, it comes up for the first time in the scripture here. And I'm going to read verses 1 through to 11 so that you see the context, because it's verse 11 that we want to talk about, but I'll read the background. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country, country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. So we're talking about Elkanah here. Elkanah, the son of Jeh. Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. One day, when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And here's our verse. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will you give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. 
So the first time the title is used in the whole of the Bible is actually in this very passage, in this book, in verse 3. And here we have Hannah, wife of Elkanah, this man who was praying to Jehovah Tzabaoth in verse 11. And the question we need to ask ourselves is not necessarily what was troubling her that she came to God. That's stated quite plainly in the text, she wanted a son. Earlier in that same chapter, which we, we, we just read, you know, we learn that she's barren. And uh, she's actually being taunted by the husband's second wife, Penina, because of the fact that she didn't have children. Now, just a quick note there. We could have a whole talk on polygamous marriages and things like that in the Bible, but it's, it should suffice to say that this is not God's original plan for man. It was man and woman. So uh, uh, things creep into cultures, and they always have done. Okay, so just because we read that there doesn't mean that it is necessarily approved. Okay, so back to Hannah, though. It was a shame if a woman can have a child back in that time, in that culture. And she would not have only felt distraught, but totally and utterly useless. And useless in the sense that her womanhood was not valid. And useless in the sense that she served no good purpose to her society, no good purpose for her husband. Despite the fact that we read her husband loved her very much and tried to console her. But that was how pervasive uh, uh, the, the thought of barrenness was, you know, the, the stigma attached to it. But she would have felt useless in another sense, in the sense that there was absolutely nothing that she could do about her situation. She couldn't reverse nature. She couldn't convince her body to become fertile. There was no physician or technology to reverse the process or to increase the odds of her having a child. So the question that we need to ask is actually, well, why, in approaching God with her plea, does she refer to him as Lord of hosts? Why this title and not another title? After all, he's got many names, hasn't he? I think we can see it in her prayer. She refers to herself as servant, or in some translations it might be maidservant. She repeats that three times. She came to him and laid her bitter heart open and completely bare. Her back is against the wall. There is absolutely nothing she can do. She needed a strong tower. She needed to be heard by an authority. She wasn't sovereign over her situation and her condition, but God is. The Lord of hosts, who commands armies, the heavenlies, who is all-powerful and mighty, is the side of God that she needed to appeal to. She could have prayed to Jehovah, Shalom, the Lord is my peace, for peace in her heart about her tribulations. She could have prayed to Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is my righteousness, for cleansing of her heart, separation from the wicked world around her, helping her not to sin, even though she was enduring a lot of uh, uh, um, stress and taunts from Penina. She could have prayed to Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider for a provision of a son and the resources and strength to care for and nurture him. And these would have been fine prayers. After all, she's praying to the same God. There is only one God, right? But she called him Tzabawath, Lord of hosts, because he is independent of anyone and anything and relies on no one. He alone commands, orders are obeyed. He alone can do the impossible when we are at our wit's end. Can you see where I'm going with this? If this is our God, the same God that she appealed to, then for us then, why don't we turn to him first 
in prayer when we're going through troubles? You know, why don't we turn to him before all other options are even considered? Why must we wait for our backs to be against the wall before we appeal to Jehovah Tzabawoth? And I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you on this fact. Maybe you are at your end. Your back is against the wall. Maybe there's nothing that you can do about your situation. Well, do you know Jehovah Tzabawoth? Do you know who he really is? Do you let him into your situation? Do you know his power and his might? Are you humble before his awesome power and might the way Hannah humbled herself as a servant before Jehovah Tzabawoth? Do you trust his power and his might? Can you relate to Hannah and see why she's appealing to the Lord of hosts? See, there's no situation, no condition, no possibility or impossibility that is beyond Jehovah Tzabawot. And the psalmist knew this. If you look in Psalms 46, I'll read it to you, verses 1 to 3 as well as 7. So Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, and verse 7, he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I'm a firm believer that the more you know of God and the more you understand and accept of him, the closer you will relate to him. The closer he will draw to you and the stronger your faith will be. And knowing this of God is why you can turn to Jehovah Tzabawot with your bitter and distressed heart. Second thing I want to look at, keeping in the same book, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Just turn a few pages. So we've talked about the appeal about appealing humbly to Jehovah Tsebaoth, Lord of hosts, in times of distress and trouble. But here's the other side of the same coin. We all know the story of David and Goliath, don't we? The young Jewish shepherd boy who killed the warrior giant from Philistine, the enemy of Israel, with just a slingshot, a stone in that slingshot. Earlier in the chapter in 17, I'll just summar- summarize it. The Philistine Goliath had been challenging the Israelite army to send their best to come and fight him. They were all afraid of this man, the whole of the Israelite army. His legend and his reputation went before him and portrayed him as an undefeatable soldier, the one against whom no man can stand a chance. He was the star fighter, the commando of the Philistines, who sought to oppose God's people and see them to their destruction, one by one. Now, with such accolades, you know, who would ever want to step up to this guy? Enter David the only one to come to the battle camp and confront him. And he actually comes to the battle camp for no other reason than to bring news and supplies from his elderly father to his brothers who were serving in the army. He's not even part of the military. But he sees the terror that had paralyzed the entire army. And he volunteers himself to confront Goliath. He puts on Saul's, King Saul's armor. And realizing that it only bogged him down, takes it off, And he goes ahead and faces this monster in his simple shepherd's clothing and armed with his slingshot and stones. And this is when he makes this very outstanding and outrageous statement. 
Follow me through to verse 45 of chapter 17. Let's read what David says. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What a statement to come from such a young man in the face of such a person like Goliath. There's a songwriter who opens one of his songs with this line. He says, I fought a battle empty-handed and I won. I didn't use no super weapon, yet I still won. And David here, we see him, he's practically empty-handed compared to Goliath, who was meters taller, uh, hundreds of pounds heavier than the, an average human being. He wore armor and bore weapons that commentators will say, you know, had enough metal to build a car. So David won this battle. He won this duel. But why? And you might say, oh, he was confident in himself and put his mind to the task. Well, this kind of self-help altruism carries no value whatsoever in a situation like this. The reality is that David, and we've seen it ourselves, David came having the confidence of Jehovah Tzabawoth, the Lord of hosts. He came to Goliath in the strength of Jehovah Tzabawoth. He came knowing who Jehovah Tzabawoth was and is and who he was in him. He came knowing that the battle was actually going to be fought by Jehovah Tzabawoth, Lord of hosts, the commander of hosts. The heavenlies were on his side, and Jehovah Tzabawoth was on his side. That is why he was confident in the face of what the rest of the Israelite army would probably call an absolute terror. I think what we read of David here and his confidence, I think he, he definitely understood the reality of the heavenlies, that God has armies and commands them. And actually, we get a very vivid picture of this in a different part of Scripture with Elisha. If you recall, there's a story of Elisha the prophet, and he is giving military advice to the Israelite army, who are at war with the Syrian army. And the king of Syria is disturbed that the Israelites are always one head a step, a step ahead, basically. And he orders for Elisha to be found. Go and find Elisha. Bring him here that we may seize him. And Elisha is hiding or he's residing in a city called Dothan. And there, in that night, the Syrian king sent all his army to go and get uh, 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 Elisha, surrounded the city of Dothan completely. During the night, it was a stealth move. And in the morning, the servant of Elisha wakes up, looks out the city gates, and sees this army around him. And he says, Master, what should we do? Look. And Elisha says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Because the one who's with us is more than the one that's however many there, there are there. Basically, he calls his servant to relax, and he prays to God. And he says, God, open the eyes of my servant that he may see. Because Elisha had seen something. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15, we read that 
The servant's eyes were open and he sees, he sees the heavenlies, armies in the heavenlies. And he can see now that God's army surrounds the very army that the king of Syria had sent. I think that is a very vivid picture. If you haven't read that story, 2 Kings chapter 6, read it, read it. And you'll see that this is none other than the Lord of hosts commanding such a heavenly host of uh, 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 angels to protect his own people. And it's an amazing thing. I think, if, I think this is what David understood. Even though we don't see that, the, the visual of the armies here, he understood that. And if his story is anything, David's story, it's a precedent of how we should be if we're God's own people, the church. Because it is to, it's to us that he's made a covenant. It, it is to, to us that he, he said he's, he'll protect in the face of our enemy. He assures us and he bids us not to be afraid. It is to us whom he says, I will be with you always till the end of time. Matthew 28, Jesus himself says that. Now, all the references of, uh, or the usage of the Lord of hosts is found in the, you know, found in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, all the attributes of God can be directly linked to Jesus because he is God. Now listen to this. Listen to how God speaks of himself here in Isaiah 44, 6. I'll read it to you. Thus says Jehovah, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is what he says. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Now listen to this parallel passage from Revelation uttered by Jesus Christ. Revelation twenty two thirteen, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is our Jehovah Tzabaoth. And if this, if this is what he says of himself, if this is what he proves, you know, how can you not be confident in him? How can sometimes, sometimes we feel like we have to endure our spiritual battles on our own? Why? When we know this of our Lord. And I was thinking about that. Why is it sometimes that we might feel that we have to endure spiritual battles on our own? Well, either we don't properly know Jehovah, Tzabawot, or we've forgotten. And if that's you, then I want to remind you of this, of him. I want to show you this of him because he shows this of himself. You know, while I was thinking about David's story and how to relate that to us, I came across a, uh, a scripture that expresses... Really, all I could ever say about coming to Jehovah Tzabawot in confidence. Because this scripture offers a very striking realization of the intensity, the intensity to which God protects his people. Uh, I just can't get it out of my mind. Let me share it for, with you. So it's in um, Isaiah 31, verses 4 and 5. Isaiah 31, 4 and 5. And I'll read it to you. For thus says Jehovah to me, As the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise, so will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass and rescue it. I was reading that, and all I could literally say is, Oh my God, oh my God, Lord of hosts. The fearless lion, the birds hovering around the nest. This is why David confronts Goliath with confidence and courage. He understands that. Goliath will be devoured by the lion of Judah. 
Goliath cannot and can never penetrate the thick cloud of circling birds to get to the nest. He will fall, simply. What are your spiritual battles? I know we endure them. We go through them. Some maybe more intensely, more so than others. The enemy and his army are always on the attack, constantly trying to attack you, especially God's people. Satan is luring people to himself by enslaving them to their sin. He's trying to put obstacles in the way of Christ's offer of grace to to people. He's trying to ensnare God's people by waging war on their hearts and on their minds. He's sowing seeds of destruction, seeds of destructive thoughts, seeds of, of destructive ideas, seeds of destructive behaviors, seeds of destructive affections in the hearts of people. He's trying all of these things. He wants to wrench God's people from God himself. That is his objective. He's trying to destroy the church by turning the laws of the land and the attitudes of society against the church. He's trying to cause God's people to suffer, to lose hope in Christ, to forget the promises that God has made to his own people. He's trying to cause God's people to spit upon the authority of Scripture, to rebel against God, to return to the path of destruction from which they were saved. He's trying all these things, and then there isn't one person in here, I'm sure, that hasn't experienced the work of the enemy in their life or fallen into some trapping. But, you know, sometimes I really hate this word. You did a great job, but. Your father survived cancer, but. Often it ushers in some caveat, some bad news, doesn't it? This time, however, I want you to hear the word but and be glad because the enemy is trying all of these things, but Jehovah Tzabawot has already defeated the enemy on the cross. In Christ shedding his blood and atoning for the sins of his people ratified. He makes the promise that no one would ever wrench his people from his hand. John 6, read it. The enemy is trying all these things, but we can still be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Ephesians 6. The enemy is trying all of these things, but the church has survived today and the gates of hell will never prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. The enemy is trying all of these things, but, and we read in Hebrews, are they angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, ministering angels to us. The enemy is trying all these things, but, and I want to leave you with this last picture. Turn with me all the way to the end, to Revelation, where we can see how all this ends. Revelation 19, and I'm going to read 11 to 21. Brothers and sisters, the enemy is trying all of these things, but, writes John, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of, of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is just Satan's henchmen. Now let's see what happens to Satan. Carry on. Follow me through to verse tw- uh, chapter 20, verse 10. Enemy does all these things, tries all these things, but chapter 20, verse 10 reads, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Christians, The enemy is trying all these things, but alas, he's captured and slain. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the rider on that white horse, Jesus, the Almighty, Jesus, our Lord of hosts, Jesus, our Jehovah Tzabawot, he's our commander. He saved us, he is on our side, he is for us. So let's appeal to him, let's be confident in him. Let me close in prayer. Lord, help us to keep these truths about Jehovah Sabaoth in mind as we walk with you and study the scriptures. May these thoughts motivate us all to run without hesitation or reservation to the strong tower of your wonderful name, the Lord of hosts. Amen. We're going to sing uh, our last hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And we can sing that because we know that the battle has been won, we have been freed, we have peace, we have righteousness, we have protection from the Lord our God.